announcement that he may not be president after January, and the US sees its highest daily figure of COVID-19 cases. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Week on 3 with me, Janice Wong. Can you believe it's already Saturday? The week just flew by at Radio 3 and it must be because we've been busy bringing you a good mix of programs and guests. And I've got so much to share with you this week. From the latest on Gay Games 2022 here to expert views on the soon-to-be-launched travel bubble and how a new initiative aims to save our oceans. Also, on this week's program, we will hear about Danish pop star Lucas Graham's experience with COVID-19 after he and his girlfriend tested positive in hospital right after the birth of their second child. Now let's start with Gay Games 2022. There's still two years to go before the nine-day event will be held here for the first time ever, but organizers are already hard at work. On Wednesday's Morning Brew program, Phil Whelan spoke to Dennis Philipsa and Lisa Lam, who are part of a team of organizers for this huge project. Gay Games started in 1982 in San Francisco, uh, and I held every four years uh, since. Uh, most of the times it was held in North America, um, three times in Europe, and in 2002 it was Sydney. Uh, and bid cities uh, need to um, bid for it, just like the Olympic Games. Um, so you need to uh, create a bid book proposal, uh, and then you got shortlisted. So there are 17 cities we're running um, to become a bid city. Uh, then we got shortlisted three yeah. years ago against Washington, D.C. and Guadalajara. And we had to do final presentations. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And where? Guadalajara in oh, uh, Mexico. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and then Hong Kong uh, won for the first time an Asian city uh, won. Which is um, truly but, amazing. Yes. So what, what is the Gay Games exactly? So it's a nine days festival open for everybody to participate. So you, and I think that's, that's very good to, to emphasize, right? Because you don't need to be part of the LGBT community. The Gay Games is open for everybody, regardless of sexual orientation, your gender identity, age, uh, disability, and also your physical ability. Yeah. It's a diversity festival and you don't need to qualify yourself. It's an open entry event. Right. Now tell me about the everybody's uh, involved, because I should imagine that quite a lot of people don't get that. I know you guys have been saying it from the word go. So the idea is really, because sports and sports, everybody's equal, right? Sure. And the idea is sport, it, it's a universal thing. So if you're going for a run or if you go for, for a tennis play, you're really able to break down uh, barriers and, and stigmatizations. And also you're able to build life, uh, build friendships together. Yeah. I think that's the key thing of, of sports. It's a universal way. Um, so the gay games in Hong Kong will be expecting 12,000 participants yeah. um, and, and about 75,000 spectators and 3,000 volunteers to organize this event. Um, we will have 36 sports, including dragon boat racing, uh, because it's a typical Hong Kong sport. Absolutely. We will have trail running, because Hong Kong has beautiful trails. Uh, and we also have esports, which will really help to, to focus on the, the younger uh, demographic of participants. Let's talk a little bit about the events that you've chosen to include. Is this in the great big rule book that you have to do X, Y and Z? Because you've just mentioned eSports. Now, that's a fairly newcomer. So there are a couple of sports which are mandatory, like, for example, swimming, 
and, and, and badminton and tennis, but we have the flexibility based on the venue capacity in Hong Kong to add some new sports um, to it, which have never been held. Yeah, like what I mentioned, dragon boat racing is the first time we have this, and it really inclusive team sports, and it's also a beautiful way to, to showcase Hong Kong's uh, great uh, facilities there. Okay, um, yeah. That... And, and then, for example, for esports, e Hong Kong has a couple of esports stadiums, arenas, and, and it's really nice to, to, to include uh, that sport in here as well. Lisa, what do we mean by esports in this event? Yeah, it's electronic sports. So basically, because one of our mission is to really attract young people in Asia. Yeah. And uh, so basically, you know, all the video games, you know, it's really a big event now uh, uh, in, in, in Asia, right? And in the Hong Kong government, you know, as well, also really pushing this. So we have been working with the eSports Association to, to do these interactive games. Yeah. yeah. Guys... You mentioned the government. There was a feeling when you first mooted this that they weren't going to be too supportive. It doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like there is support. So actually, you know, from, from the very beginning, you know, the government has been aware and they have been, you know, helpful, you know. Okay. Uh, as, uh, Dan yeah. Yeah, as Dan was saying, you know, when we were uh, bidding for the uh, for the games, you know, there's actually um, have, they have to come to do an on-site visit just to make sure the venues are, you know, up to standard and, you know, and that there's in these the kind of infrastructure to support this, the games of this scale, right? Yeah. So we contacted, uh, yeah, we contacted LCSD and, and other uh, site managers. They were very helpful. They show us around, you know, show the inspectors around and, uh, and then... You know, so that was very helpful because that really helped, you know, give the confidence to the... Well, that means it's on. I mean, that's very good news indeed. I do know some people yeah. doubted the government support ages yeah. ago. Don't get me wrong. You know, obvious reasons, you, yeah. you guys know. But no, fantastic. Yeah. It's rock and roll. Yeah. You're on. Yeah, and we got the letter of support from the, you know, from the, you know, some legislative councillor as, well as, as well as uh, the EOC. Great. You know. And since now, you know, for the last few years, since we've been preparing, we've been ongoing discussions with the government as well, yeah. uh, you know, non-area. Non so they have been supportive, yeah. Well done. That is ap that's great. That's a, green, that's a green light. Now, at the moment, you're a fairly small group of volunteers. Does that change? So we have volunteers, but we are professionals in their role. So right. the person doing finance is an accountant. Uh, Lisa is, is a lawyer. So the people are really professionals, volunteers, who don't need to be skilled in doing the thing. Uh, we have a couple of volunteers who are even full-time volunteers, um, the full-time job on this. Got it. Uh, because we are so passionate working on this. Uh, and, and during the gay games itself, we have about 3,000 volunteers working on this. Yeah, yeah. So at this stage, are you looking for more help right now? Yes, we're always looking for volunteers. People can go to our website. Uh, we're looking for people helping us with marketing, with outreach, uh, with promotion events. And just people want to be a coach, sports coordinator. We're always looking for passionate volunteers who right. want to help. So uh, I saw that there's a webinar and bits and pieces going on. Awareness right now is crucial. How can people join in? Um, just go to our website or to our Facebook page and people go to the... Um, uh, we have an online, uh, an on-site event at the Peninsula. Uh -huh. uh, we have a couple of guests. Um, and the webinar is open for everybody. So please go to the webinar, the Zoom webinar, and, and join to learn more about the events. We have six amazing speakers, uh, including Vivian Lee, also yeah. Chris McDonald, uh, the director of ceremonies, um, and, and, and also um, uh, Charles, who is in charge of the Festival Village. We have a volleyball player who participated at the Gay Games in Paris yes. and won a gold medal. 
Um, and, and the key thing is really to, to educate people about the event and, and to raise awareness about this, but also enable people to get active, get involved in the event. I was looking at your website this morning, and obviously within your committee, your group of organisers, people do have different jobs. You mentioned village here, so there's stuff that's not happening on a field or in a venue that's very important. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So, so yeah, actually, in addition to sports, actually, Gay Games is also like a big arts and culture event. Yep. So the village, you know, is where, you know, you know, after the sports, right, you have a day of sports and then, you know, that's where people congregate, you know, mm -hmm. or people can bring their families together, you know, just to see the performances or exhibitions, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so that's that's where people can just enjoy almost like the wine and dine sure. kind of festival in, in sure, Hong Kong. Sure, sure. Yeah. So here we are two years uh, ahead. He's just said that they've got a, a live event at the peninsula. What's going on there? So we have a couple of guests who uh, will be uh, invited uh, to attend the event uh, and where we'll be talking about the gay games, the history and also the impact and importance for Hong Kong to have this event for the first time right, in Asia. Right. Did you guys ever find out exactly what tips the balance for you, why you actually got it? Or did you just not ask? <laughs> well, I think the fact that, you know, uh, the, you know, Hong Kong being such a unique city in Asia and the FGG really wants to actually bring, expand, you know, the games, you know, uh, beyond traditionally where it's been held, you know, mostly in the Americas and sure, Europe, sure. you know, to really bring it to Asia. And I think if you look around in Asia, you know, Hong Kong is, is very uniquely positioned to, to have a game. And I think that makes a big difference. Mm, well, and I think also Hong Kong has great infrastructure, right? Hong Kong has amazing mm -hmm. sports facilities. It's easy to go around from one venue to the other venue. Uh, from arriving at the airport, having the airport express. So I think it's also, it, it, it's quite nearly built for a big events, world-class events to host in Hong Kong. And that was Dennis Philipsa and Lisa Lam, organizers of Gay Games 2022, speaking on Wednesday's Morning Brew. If you think waiting two years for gay games is a long time, here's something you don't have to wait too long for. And that is Hong Kong's air travel bubble with Singapore, which will take off on the 22nd of this month. The scheme will begin with one flight per day into each city, with a quota of 200 travelers per flight. Hugh Chiverton and I discussed this scheme on Thursday's Backchat program with Rubio Chan, co-founder of GLO Travel and Vera Yoon, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Business and Economics. Before COVID, uh, we have around 600,000 tourists traveling between Hong Kong and Singapore per year. So if you look at this number, 200 people per day is not very significant compared to pre-COVID situation. But I think it's a very important first step for both cities to have this pioneer scheme to whether a travel bubble like this could work. And I, I think it's a good pioneer, pioneering scheme for tourism. And so far, what's been the response? I mean, have there been many uh, inquiries about uh, travel to Singapore? We don't really receive a lot of inquiries. I think basically because we're not an agent that one tours for Singapore mainly. But I think that the travel agent friends around us uh, have been activating their tour product to Singapore. 
But then I don't think they are really optimistic in very short term because 200 people per day could be a really little. So, and you know, in Singapore, they're still having this social distancing rule that uh, only five people can, uh, for example, have a meal together. So group tours do not work this time as well. So they only welcome individual travel. So for travel platforms, uh, they might more welcome this measure instead of traditional travel agencies. Do you think there's a pent-up demand, though? Do you think that people do want to travel? I think people want to travel. Many, many friends of mine, and including those in travel circle or not, they, they already look at uh, the, the air ticket between Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, they look at uh, the main airline uh, website. Uh, of course, the, the flight price uh, is still quite expensive compared to peak COVID level, but then many of them think that it's still acceptable. And I think they will consider going to Singapore in, in a month or two, especially during Christmas time, because, you know, they're, they're craving for travel for a long time. But do you think uh, the cost of testing is also an issue as well? I mean, many people have said it's a, a bit expensive. I think it's an issue. Um, you know, it, it almost doubles the usual cost of, of travel to Singapore. But then, given the, the travel desire from Hong Kong people, you know, the spend, travel spending from Hong Kong is, is quite huge each year for COVID. So, you know, they have been saving a lot of money for this. And, you know, if, if they really want to travel, I think it's not difficult to fulfill the 200 people quota per day. And also we have business travelers, the, the companies and corporates will pay for these COVID tests. So I think um, if this um, just to fulfill the 200 people quota, I think it's measures would not be such a uh, obstacle. Uh, Virian, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, the um, Secretary for Economic uh, Development has said that uh, he hopes that uh, aviation, tourism, hotel, retail and catering business can benefit from uh, this arrangement, uh, enabling Hong Kong's economy to recover gradually. Uh, do you think that's uh, hope is uh, justified? Well, I think this is a pilot scheme that um, the, the whole a scheme that may not only apply in, uh, to Singapore, but may apply to other countries in the future. So for this moment, it is really for testing out whether um, and how these things, uh, the infrastructure and the facilities would work out, because two countries have to make agreement and then to recognize each other's um, uh, virus test. And then for the airport, they have to um, create an independent um, walkway and bridges for these passengers so that they don't mix with other passengers that are not in this team. So I think this is a pilot um, team for, you know, the future that applies to larger number of tourists. So um, at the meantime, if it's only like 200 passengers per day, it really won't help a lot. But it, to pave the way um, for future wider application. And I'm thinking... Um, there will be a lot of, you know, leisure travelers for this purpose because it's actually quite expensive for people beating up um, air tickets, uh, which cost like uh, two times the market price um, compared with uh, last year. And also um, it costs maybe 2000 something Hong Kong dollars for the test. Uh, so I think mainly it would be business travelers who would take advantage of this because um, there's a need for them to travel and to 
perhaps meet in Singapore to visit some premises in Singapore that uh, would make use of the scheme. So it won't be uh, much of a real boost then for, for Hong Kong's economy? For this scale, it won't because there are only like a maximum of 200 travelers. So, I mean, it's very little. And uh, the travel bubble will be suspended uh, if the daily average uh, number of uh, untraceable COVID-19 cases uh, in a week reaches more than five in either city. Um, and, and this week, Hong Kong has already reached uh, that number. Um, is that a concern? I mean, do you think the travel bubble will um, actually uh, take off at all? Um, it really depends on um, the two governments' um, COVID measures and you know, how they manage this thing. I really don't know um, in the future how uh, the COVID situation will develop. There may be some um, days that it could work, but maybe it will be put in hold quite immediately because when there are more travelers and then they try to establish the same thing with other countries, then it increases the chance that we have more cases locally. And then it will also increase the chance that this travel bubble will be hot. I will put into hot so to wait until the case number um, falls back. Um, and then when uh, when it works, I mean people have to plan for the trip. And then if this case number um, kind of um, make whether the scheme will work, uncertain. That is, I don't know whether in one week's time when I want to travel there will be lower case number. Then it will be quite of an you know, disincentive for me to plan my trip. So it really have to wait out to see how it works out. And that's why the government is doing it in a small scale, because it wants to try to whether it um, will in the long run work. But, I mean, if, if you think about um, the vaccines available in other countries in the future, and then the whole situation um, dies down, and perhaps this will go on. I think the government is not going to, you know, completely remove this scheme. So it may last for like, um, you know, in, in for one more year or even, you know, forever. You don't know um, what it would be. What's also, of course, a little bit odd is that this uh, arrangement has been made with Singapore uh, <clears throat> rather than the motherland, uh, rather than the mainland. Uh, why is that? Um, I think it really how they communicate and make the uh, negotiation with the government, um, you know, in mainland and also in Singapore. And I think Singapore is a small country and is also keen to open up and welcome business travelers. Um, but for mainland, I think that the government has, is more strict on, you know, um, protecting its um citizens in a way that they don't want virus to, to get in and then um, it affects the industry and economic um, recovery. So it is really the different attitude the government takes in the, in trading off between um, economic growth and, um, you know, virus precautions. So Singapore, I mean, it's a very small city. I think it's more keen to really, you know, get the economy um, uh, to get back from the pre-COVID level. So they want to welcome more travelers and business trips um, uh, for the majority. So 
um, it could revive the economy sooner. But for mainland, it's very big country, and, and they have a lot of export and all these things. They, they don't need um, you know people who travel into mainland. So I think I think they take different attitude in dealing with this issue. And that was Rubio Chan, co-founder of GLO Travel, and Vera Yoon, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Business and Economics, speaking on Thursday's Back Chat. Turning to the environment now, on this week's Trash Talk, Marcy Trent Long spoke to Doug Woodring from the Ocean Recovery Alliance and Andrea Ritchie of the Hong Kong Shock Alliance about their upcoming collaborative initiative, Dried Ocean. So what is that all about? Let's have a listen. Dried Ocean is uh, an analogy to the desertification or the death of our ocean. And it's not only about sharks, but all kind of animals and obviously marine pollution and plastic. So when you look at some of the figures that say over 80% of the large fish are dead or have been overfished, uh, not to mention uh, what you see down in Shengwan and a lot of the markets here in Hong Kong, which is really a hotbed globally for the trade of dried seafood. We, we thought the name dried ocean is a perfect analogy. So if you think of eight out of ten things are now gone uh, to service the ocean, that's a bit the same as you having um, – only two days out of 10, you can brush your teeth or flush your toilet because you're not being serviced. And now the ocean is not being serviced and not being serviced for decades. And, and we haven't paid enough attention to that. Now, how are we going to promote this concept of awareness for the dried ocean, both bringing together the fact that you go to Saing Poon and you see all these animals from the ocean, which are being depleted, hanging up dried in the seafood stalls and... Is, it, is there a parallel to the plastic pollution there at all, or is it uh, well, just focused on that? If you look at uh, what they call resilience for climate change and humans trying to survive in a climate change world with floods and disasters, uh, the ocean and the animals in the ocean need resilience to be able to survive in a world where they're being hunted by bigger ships, more technology, more radar, farther offshore capacities, you know, we're really, our fishing fleets globally are looking for the last few fish um, in the deepest waters. And so when we think of the dried ocean, it's not just Hong Kong, even though that's a great symbol of because there's so many dried shops there. This is really a, a global message. And sometimes it takes a different wording and different phrases to catch people people's attention in a different way. So we've been talking about ocean preservation and plastic pollution and sharks for forever, but maybe something goes through someone's ear and out the other. But you say the dried ocean, they say, what the heck is that? And then you start a discussion and then you explain it and, you know, you can. this is a, just another way to, to, to get a point across. And then in your education, are you taking people, yeah. I saw a photo, you're taking yeah. some trips down mm -hmm. to the thing. Does that seem to be working or effective? Or? Yeah, I think that's very effective. I think it's real eye-opening, right? People say, oh, I lived there for years and I never noticed it. You know, mm -hmm. I lived in that neighborhood. Um, I take schools on field trips. I'll take private tours. I just think people should see the actual um, – the, 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 the market there is bustling, right? It's a multi-billion U.S. dollar business and there's no curb. It's not illegal as Doug said, um, but, but it's definitely poisonous, not only mercury 
mercury, but arsenic and lead, high levels of this in the shark fins and the shark meat it comes from the bioaccumulation. And I think the older generation really need to, to know about this. And when I give my talks to kids, I say, let your grandparents, let your parents know, right, that it is no longer safe to eat this. It's actually all fish, right? But it's no longer safe to eat shark fin soup because of this high level of me uh, heavy metal in the shark fins. Which, And then I ask them this question, where do you think that poison comes from? And invariably, every kid gets it. Pollution. Mm. It's the plastic in the ocean. It's the pollution. Little fish are eating, you know, all exactly, those microcosms, right? And then the apex predator shark has to eat a lot of little fish every day to fill its gullet, right? So I think it's important that they, you know, that the kids understand this, but then they become our little shark ambassadors and they take that message home. Yeah. So it's just one way of getting the message out to people. Oh, well, that's so, great. so, you know, to that point, it's also uh, coal power plants and all of the industrial pollution, which rains back into the ocean and that gets the heavy metals, not not just the plastic, but the Andrea's photos of her doing her tours in Shenguan. I've sent them to friends in the U.S. and they all say, what? what's going on? Why is this still allowed? We thought it was illegal because they all read that in China, you can't have um, shark fin at government banquets. So people just assumed that it, it was stopped and done and they didn't even realize it. So even even getting people overseas to know that you're doing these tours and these photos is already helpful. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It helps get the word out. I mean, the point is that the dried ocean concept that Doug came up with is really about extinction. Okay. And the extinction is over due to overfishing. And I'll give you a perfect example in Hong Kong. When I came here 30 years ago, we had um, no shark nets at the beaches, but we had six people killed by sharks. And so the government knee-jerk reacted by putting shark nets out. And now all gazetted beaches have shark nets, but we have no sharks. And that was Doug Woodring from the Ocean Recovery Alliance and Andrea Ritchie of the Hong Kong Shark Alliance in Trash Talk on Wednesday's 123 show. Well, people often say that crisis brings out the best and worst of us. And I guess the COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example. Danish pop star Lucas Graham told Alison Howe in her Common Room program on Tuesday about his experience with COVID-19 after testing positive soon after his second child was born. We went into lockdown afraid that Rillo, uh, my girlfriend who was pregnant, would get sick. Yes. Then we went, then like the day before we uh, Rillo was ready to go into labor, they lifted the restrictions in the hospital. And we went to the hospital, um, we were supposed to have a home birth, with, like we did with the first child, but her iron levels were low, we went to the hospital, so we had to go to a hospital to be sure, and uh, we did a, like a home birth in a hospital, in like a big bathtub, and like, oh, I, was wow. si I was sitting with her in the bathtub, helping her give labor, um, and everything was, was crazily beautiful, and it was a really short birth, and then mm. we all got we all got tested for coronavirus after the birth as a part of this uh, maternity program. And it turns out we had it. So we went into lockdown with the coronavirus. Oh, so wow. it was good that we didn't go outside because then we would have 
like spread it to a lot of people and like our friends and everyone thought we were a little like oh you you guys are a little tough on the lockdown why can't we come see you and you were just being responsible the whole time well i'm we're doing our best to be responsible isn't always necessarily what the government tells you but during a pandemic responsible is literally to stay at home you're not the only one who's feeling broken you're not the only one who feels alone you're not the only one who's feeling hopeless that was lucas graham speaking on tuesday's common room And apart from all these programs and guests we carefully line up for you, we also organize a number of competitions throughout the year. The latest one is Top Story 2020, a writing competition to test your creativity. This year's theme is Solitude. You can check out our Radio 3 homepage if you want more information. Don't miss this opportunity, the deadline is on the 27th of this month. Finally, on Thursday, Steve James celebrated a birthday in the music world. Booker T. Jones of Booker T. Jones and the MGs just turned 76. We'll end this week's program with a playout of one of their greatest hits in the 1960s, Time is Tight. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend.